even through the process, I try and be pretty transparent of these are the things I'm looking at. This is what I'm thinking about as I'm looking at it. This is why I'm asking for the data that I'm asking for and giving the feedback of here's the things that I think you should be thinking about, should be changing. And I also caveat that with you should never change your business based on something a VC. I'm looking at it for two weeks. You've been living this for you know probably a year or more. So you're going to understand the solution a lot more, but you know, these are the things from the outside that I'm seeing. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. My guest today is Steve Pretry. He's a partner at World Innovation Labs. He has been a founder, he's been an investor, and he's been in the Silicon Valley for many, many years. So we're going to ask him about his journey. How did he become a venture capital investor? And now that he is wearing a hat as a VC, how does he look at founders and startups? What advice does he give to founders based on his own experience as a founder? And what gets him excited? What kind of topics does he invest in? Steve, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thank you. It's good to be here. And just to let everyone know, Gopi and I have talked about this. I don't like doing podcasts. I'm doing this because Gopi is a good friend and wanted to do this with him specifically. Well, thank you, Steve. I know that this is not something that you do often. It's a very rare special moment that uh, we're able to get you on the mic. Let's see what we come up with. Let's start with you. You are a very rare local Silicon Valley citizen who actually grew up here. You never left to go anywhere else. You actually built your entire career and life here, I did. right? Yeah, so I was born in San Francisco, went to high school in Half Moon Bay and was the fourth kid ever to go from Half Moon Bay High to, to Stanford and knew the other three people who'd gone just a few years before me. So all four of us were there at the same time. So it was a, kind of an interesting experience going from what then was a farming and fishing community and into a, a place like Stanford. Let's start with the early career. Like what got you into the world of technology and what was your journey in the well, beginning? I mean, obviously growing up in the area, it was something that I'd seen growing up. You know, Steve Jobs founding Apple, that was all happening as I was growing up in the area. But it was an interesting first startup I did was actually in insurance um, at, RMS. at RMS. Came in, was the founder there. He and I actually lived in the same house on campus undergrad for a couple of years before he graduated and founded RMS. His father was the chairman of the civil engineering department at Stanford, which is where some of the early research that had built that technology came from. And that was just a very unique group and experience of probably... 90% of the people at the startup when I was there, and I was kind of one of the first 10 to 15 people there, were all within a couple of years of each other from Stanford, knowing each other undergrad. And so we were building a company, but also kind of growing up together in a lot of ways. And I think that that was a unique culture and just some incredible individuals from there that have gone off and started other companies, run other companies, become VCs. It was a pretty unique group that I learned just a tremendous amount from. RMS is a revolutionary company at the time when it was created. It was one of the first risk modeling companies that took technology seriously and was built on that. And that has really transformed the way insurance companies work. Yeah. You spent many years there and eventually you decided to start a company. 
Before we jump to that, RMS, like you said, modeling company, I think that's where I learned insurance and kind of started to fall in love with the industry and how risk was quantified and how it was kind of transferred across the markets and understanding that. And RMS was pretty unique, but it also was one of those of timing is right to where as the company started, bad things happened, which were good for the company in that you know, within a few years, you had Hurricane Andrew that came through, almost kind of wiped out half the industry. And then you had both Loma Prieta and Northridge earthquakes. And I think that those events were just a wake-up call for the entire industry that made them realize, okay, we've got to figure out better ways to manage model risk and we can't do it the traditional means. Actuarial data does not help us do that. And so it, it forced an adoption of a new model of doing this. And so the company was in some ways lucky to be right place, right time with a solution that was desperately needed. And so learn through that. From there, I actually ended up going to another company called Asurion. And again, there it was the person that I had worked for at RMS became the CEO at that company when, him, when they were doing probably about $70 million in revenue at the time. He brought me in a few years later, but it was a company at the time that was doing handset insurance. You know, it's AppleCare before AppleCare and doing it through the carriers. And again, it was one of those unique timing to where it was just at the time that cell phones were taking off initially flip phones and then obviously the launch of the iPhones and was able to take advantage of that. And there it was seeing how insurance could work when plugged into the right kind of distribution channel. So this is a product that you told someone, oh, go buy you know, insurance for your phone after you've bought it. Less than 1% of people would ever do that. But a product where important value proposition and offered at the right point in time of you just got this phone that was $800 in today's dollars, probably $1,600. It's free with the carrier plan, but if you break it, lose it, whatever, you're going to have to pay for it. And people are like, oh, wow, that's a really big expense for me. Oh, but you could get this you know, insurance product. I mean, it covers any of those cases, enormous adoption, but it was because of the company's ability to really get embedded in that channel and learn how to sell effectively through that channel. I think when I started, the company was doing a few hundred million dollars in revenue, and then five years later was doing multiple billions of dollars in revenue. So being able to kind of watch, again, a change in a product that people needed that hadn't existed before, plugged into the right channel, being able to get to scale. I was thinking about when, like you said, I did end up going and when I left Ashurion, meeting up with my co-founder, Dave, and starting Metromile. That's an important moment. I love how you describe your career. Everything revolves around measuring, managing risk. And when we do that well, then there's more fairness in the world. The world is a level playing field. People are more eager to buy things that are a little bit risky, like gadgets and things like that. That improves quality of life. So overall, it's a good thing when there's more transparency on how we measure risk. Metro Mile was a pioneer. You were a pioneer in the insurtech world when all of this was brought into the world of insurance. Technology had never really touched the world of insurance in such a significant way until then. RMS was one of the early companies that attempted to do this, but InsurTech revolution started with companies like MetroMile. Were you scared? Were you excited? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I was excited and naive enough to think that we could pull that off and learned a lot through that process. And there were definitely some things that surprised me along the way. And, you know, thinking about MetroMile early on of this idea and the data was very clear at the time of looking at the changes in society, particularly the peoples in their 20s and 30s moving back into urban areas, starting to use more, more public transportation, 
Uber and Lyft were starting at the time. And so there was a segment of the population that was just driving a lot less than historically people would drove. And so we could easily see large portions of that segment driving 3,000 miles a year, three, four, 5,000 miles a year, and looking at other carriers pricing the way it was set up. And obviously you can see that by pulling their rate filings and looking at the way that it's in there. You know, the difference between someone driving 2,000 miles a year and someone driving 20,000 miles a year might be 15%. And it just didn't make any sense because it's just obvious that, you know, the more you're driving, the more you're on the road, the more likely something is going to happen. And so I think that insight, looking at that and thinking about the opportunity to potentially go and build an iconic brand, right? And say, we can actually build a brand that people know, and it does something to actually help a segment of the population that is being dramatically underserved. And so that was the challenge that made it fun. And it kind of knew enough to be dangerous, but not enough to convince myself that it couldn't be done. And so dropped into to go try and do it. The high risk, high mileage drivers are subsidized by low risk, low mileage drivers. And that's not fair. It would be good to put a cohort of high mileage drivers who are priced differently and low mileage drivers who are priced differently. That would be the right thing to do. And that's what you wanted to bring to the world. Absolutely a fantastic brand that has built over the years. And I would call it a great success story. But the story hasn't played out exactly like how it could have. Uh, The potential was far more amazing. What happened? Yeah, I think there were... The went IPO. It it did. And I think there were a number of things that definitely learned along the way. One of the biggest ones, and when I look at companies now on the other side, the direct-to-consumer model with insurance is just is hard, particularly when you're not at scale like a, a Geico and a Progressive and others. And even though we built a great brand, built a great product, delivered great service, and I'll credit Dan, Dan who ran the company through the IPO for just doing a tremendous job to do that. And I, I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and told him, I still, every time I talk to a founder, half the time they're like, oh, I'm a Metro Mile customer and I had this and this had happened and it was an amazing experience and wow, you guys did a really good job. And that's a reflection on him and the, the job he was able to do. And this is not just a Metro Mile thing, but thinking about insurance and a couple of adages that people always use of insurance is sold, not bought. And the idea that if you look at the vast majority of insurance products, people buy when they're forced to buy them. They're not buying them as a discretionary purchase. So you buy auto insurance because you're required to have it to be out on the road. You buy homeowner's insurance because your mortgage provider requires that you have it. There are a few life insurance and a few other categories where it is a discretionary purchase. But in most of the cases, it's something that people aren't going out and shopping for. People aren't excited to go buy. And even like looking at the assuring model where left to their own devices, less than 1% of people would buy that product, but offered the product at the right point in time. It's paired with another transaction I'm doing. It fits with that. There's a value proposition. I understand it. More than half the people are going to buy the product at that point. And so looking at with Metromile, the challenge of going direct to consumer, trying to build a brand and just trying to get people to engage even with a value proposition that was obvious for them. Driving less, I should save more. This is a perfect product for me. It's just harder to get people to switch than I would have anticipated going in. I think that was one of the lessons learned. The other lesson learned was certainly think about insurance in the regulatory environment, the 50 state regime of going and having to get kind of. You have uh, to almost educate a lot yeah. of the regulators on yeah. what this is. Regi- educate regulators, but just the, the process of I've got to file in 50 different states and get approved and just going through that. I think regulators serve a good purpose. I'm not anti-regulator or anti-regulation, 
But if you look at it from a startup's perspective of the most important thing to a startup is speed, speed, efficiency, keeping costs down, being able to move quickly. And just that process of I've now to go to go and I've got a three to six month process that I've got to repeat 50 times before I can get in all 50 states is very debilitating. And particularly when you start thinking about something like a metro mile type of product, you know, in some cases when you say, okay, the direct consumer model is hard. Well, your alternative is to partner with bigger people where you can go through channels and sell. Well, if you're going to a large partner that is operating in all 50 states, you're saying, well, I can only offer this in 10 states. That doesn't work. And so I think that that regime, as much of a consumer protection and other benefits is provide for a startup, it was harder and more of an issue than I expected it to be starting out. I thought, it, yes, it'll take time, it'll take perseverance, but just kind of think that friction was challenging. Now, you are the co-founder and first CEO of MetroMile. Mm-hmm. Congratulations to you for achieving what MetroMile has achieved so far. You got the attention of all large insurance companies to take a look at technology more closely, GPS, telematics, and various other things for auto. But every other aspect of the insurance world is now closely paying attention to technology. Another thing that also happened was startup founders felt like, oh, there's a huge opportunity here that I could actually build an insure tech focused company focusing on an industry that's largely sleepy with very little R&D. So there's a massive opportunity and that attracted a lot of very good founders you kind of led the path for future insure tech companies to come into the world. Is it difficult to build an insure tech startup? What's your advice to founders yeah. starting companies in this space? It's obviously challenging. It's got its own unique set of challenges, but it's doable. It's very doable. There are a number of factors I think about when founders are coming to us. And one of them is going back to kind of what I was talking about, the is insurance bought or sold. And if founders coming to me and saying, oh, I've got this product the market is underserved. It's underinsured. And a lot of times it's people who are coming from an insurance background and seeing a market that, oh, wait, only 20% of people in this market are buying insurance. It should be a lot higher than that. I asked the question of, well, who's your audience here? I mean, I think that's something that people really should understand. Is it that the end customer out there is sitting there saying, oh, shoot, I don't have insurance for this. I'm missing out. How can I get insurance? There's not a product available to me or it's too hard to buy or it's too expensive for some reason. Or is it that the people selling the insurance feel like I could sell more of this if it was easier for me to sell? And so whose problem are you actually solving? And both are very legitimate audiences to be satisfying, but really understanding with the product you're doing, is this a product where you're enabling the sellers or enabling the buyers of the product? And so what problem are you really solving? And then once you've determined that, focusing your solution around, okay, these are actually the things I'm needing to solve in terms of what does my go-to-market look like? What does my product look like? And really getting that focus. Like what problem are you solving? Who are you solving the problem for? Get that down clear before you you create a company. So that clarity is important. Now you are a VC. You Mm -hmm. went from the founder side of the table to the VC side. Yep. How did that transition happen? Why do you like being a VC? I like being a VC because I like working with founders. And today I'm focusing on an early stage fund that that we're doing with Tokyo Marine, their CVC effectively. And I think the great opportunity there is great company. They have 
depending on how you count the entities, insurance companies in the U.S. that they own across a broad variety of businesses. And so I have the ability to not only invest in companies, but find ways to be strategically helpful to them. I like the, you brought the Tokyo Marine story in so we can talk more about the fund itself. Tell me a little more about the fund you manage at will for Tokyo Marine. What stage do you invest in? What kind of startups are a good fit for you? How early is too early? How late is too late? As you said, right now I'm focusing a lot of my efforts with Tokyo Marine and a fund that we have set up to run with them to operate since their CVC. And there we're investing pre-seed through Series A is kind of the focus that we're on. Typically not leading deals. So doing half million to million dollar initial checks into early stage companies, insure tech, but also kind of have a broad mandate to look at adjacencies, whether it's financial services, climate and sustainability, healthcare, mobility, cybersecurity. There's a pretty broad mandate. And so we are looking at founders who are building great and interesting companies. Part of why I'm focusing my effort there is I like working with those early stage founders. That is where you know, most of my career is focused on that early stage and kind of how do you put together the pieces to solve the puzzle of what makes this into a great business and being able to work with founders directly on that. But then in working with the Tokyo Marine team, they own great companies in the U.S. across a wide variety of insurance lines of business. And so having the ability not just to bring dollars, advice, but also how can we actually leverage that group of companies to be helpful? Are they going to be customers? Can they be channel partners? Can they be advisors? Or can they provide capacity to someone that's starting something up? And so I think that having that combination in some ways allows me to scratch the business development operator itch a little bit while also playing the role of the VC and you know bringing both capital and as much advice as we can to the table. And that's the part I like about the corporate side of venture capital. You're solving problems on both sides. On one side, you're working with founders to help solve a problem that they have come up with. And it's usually very, very exciting. And on the other side, you work with large corporations to work with a business unit to identify a strategic priority. And building that partnership with a startup can be super valuable for the large company. It's innovation outside their four walls, which as a VC, you and I are able to facilitate that. But it doesn't work well all the time because working with large corporations is complicated and working with startups is chaotic for large companies. So orchestrating that is not that easy. Can we take an example of a company you invested in? How did you meet the founder? What happened in that first meeting? What did you ask the founder? What got you excited to yeah. say, yes, I want to invest in this company? So one example, actually a company very closely involved in, it's a company called Voxel. It is in the computer vision space. So they tap into the existing video cameras that are in warehouses, manufacturing facilities, logistics facilities, retail environments, and so on, and are able to use computer vision to identify risk events that are happening that could lead to an injury in a worker's comp or liability claim. And highly technical team, a lot of people who had been working on autonomous driving for a while and realized, okay, that's 10 years away. It's not going to come soon. Let's actually tackle some problems that we can solve faster. And so I've brought that extremely high end technical capability into this space. And it was actually identified by the Tokyo Marine team. They'd met Alex at some event and liked what he was doing. So introduced me to him. And we probably spent six months getting to know each other. He wasn't raising at the time, and it was something where I liked him, liked what he was doing. We got together multiple times and just got to know each other. I was advising him as much as I can as we were going along and just built a relationship to when they did end up raising the next round. He called up and said, hey, can we figure out a way to work together on this? 
it was very funny. The other VCs on the deal were like, no, 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 why are you letting a strategic in? This doesn't make any sense. They're not going to add value. We don't need them. And Alex really fought to help us get into the round. And it is a case where I've actually really delivered. So in this particular space, one of the Tokyo Marine companies is a company called Safety National. They're a very large rider of what's called excess workers comp in the US. And so it's very large companies that have either a captive or a very high retained layer of kind of the initial risk they retain and then have an excess policy layer on top of that for more catastrophic types of things. They work with the, exactly the type of customers that Voxel is targeting. And it's been very funny as we've gone along, Voxel guys, as they've been going out and, you know, kind of working with companies that keep finding out, wait, Safety National is the insurer here. Wait, Safety National is the insurer here. And has become one where Safety Nationals come in and helped introduce them to a number of their best customers. And it's really a case where you know, it's not an insurance solution. It is a, it's an AI solution. It's a risk mitigation solution. But we're seeing the direct impact of the companies that are adopting it, putting it into a few sites. Safety Nationals actually paid for a few sites with a couple of their customers. And they see the results and all of a sudden say, oh, let's start putting it across four and five and six and more sites across the organization because they're seeing the direct impact. And so I think that's been a great use case. And then I've gotten to know the other board members and they're actually like, actually, it's good to have these guys here. They're adding value. <laughs> and so it's just been one that's, that's worked out really well. But it was a case of like any startup, get to know the founder, build a relationship, see where we can add value, and then over time become an investor. And we've been in a case of getting in initially and then you know adding to that investment as we move forward and increasing our stake in the company based on the success we're seeing on both sides of that relationship. And that's the way we like to see it work. Now, there are many things I want to pick up on here, but let me highlight this. It's shocking for large companies when they hear that, oh, startups don't want us on their cap table. They get offended often that, we're a big brand. We've been around for decades and we are very well respected. We are so popular. How could you not want us? But in the startup world, it often comes down to the partner that's doing the deal and that your relationship and your personal reputation in the world got the fund on the cap table and everything followed through and the strategic partnership has actually worked out really well for both sides. It's great to see that success story. Yeah. And it's a combination. In this case, Tokyo Marine is a great global brand. And with great brands in the U.S. and in other countries, but I think there is a skepticism with CVCs, with large corporates doing strategic investments of, can you actually deliver on the value that you say you're going to? And more often than not, that they don't. And so I think one of the keys is make sure that you're delivering on some of that value. And one of the lenses I've been putting in place is, okay, let's work together on a POC for six months and see if there's a strategic relationship and then do an investment because that process doesn't work. You know, that's torturous for founders. That's torturous for founders. It doesn't work. It's not the way you can get into good rounds. And so we want to move fast and kind of have a decision-making process. It's two or three weeks. But definitely putting the lens on, particularly with the early stage investments of, not what strategic value can we extract from having done this deal, but is there a way for us to add value quickly? You know, there's a company called Careful that we invested in. It's actually doing financial services for an aging population. So they are looking at, as people get older, how do I start putting the right financial safeguards around their assets? And so it's some you know, specific fraud detection. That is, you know, the fraud vectors in that population are different than others. So doing some specific 
fraud detection for that sector, and then looking at how do we give the tools to that aging person that allows them to start giving transparency and then transitioning responsibility as needed to the next generation. And so it's building an important financial stewardship capability that as many of the populations around the world are are aging need. And it's a major stress for families um, of I've got an aging adult, I'm the financial steward for them. How do I do that in the right sort of way? And so important product, not necessarily something that we're aligned with in the US, obviously working to help them here, but it's one where we look at it and say, well, as challenging as that problem is in the US, in Japan, it's an even bigger challenge. The population is older and it is a product where when the time is right, we're looking at and saying, we can learn a lot now in terms of what services need to be delivered to that population. How do they need to deliver it? How can we learn from that? But eventually we're there to help them with, okay, when you're ready, let's take you to Japan because the need there is potentially even greater than here. And we can be helpful in doing that and opening that market for you. The corporate side often has a long process like POCs and things like that they want to see before they commit to an investment. At least there's a consensus required from business units buying into the transaction, but you act far more independently. You don't need many of those things and you can move much faster than a typical CVC. You've already given two examples from your portfolio. How many startups do you typically invest in on an every year? And how long does it take for you to make these decisions? Yeah, we're trying to do two to three deals a quarter. It's kind of the pace that we're on. And like I said, typically doing kind of a half million to a million dollar initial check-in to those companies and then being in a position to, to follow on in, in subsequent rounds. And every deal obviously is a little bit different, but I've had a couple of deals where we literally have met the company one week and been through investment committee and committed to the deal the next week. That's kind of the exception, not the rule. In a lot of those cases, it's been a case where we already had a pre-existing relationship. We knew each other and around came together quickly. We had to move quickly to be able to, to participate in it. But our standard is kind of two to four weeks. And so as part of that, we're doing standard due diligence. We do all of our own due diligence, even though we're not leading, because we want to be in a place where we understand the business, we're aligned with the founders, we know how we can help. We don't have to have a POC is done and all that kind of stuff, but we do want to identify is this a case of we're investing because we think that there's long-term strategic interest here, not necessarily short-term, or is there an opportunity for us to help out early on and to have kind of looked across the group companies and identified, okay, here's where we think the initial linkage is and where we could add value in the near term and kind of have alignment on that so that once the deal is done, we're actually in a position to move and add value sooner rather than later. So we want to have a plan around. This is great. You're giving the audience very clear examples of how things work, how you make decisions, what's the process. What's your most common reason to say no? I mean, there are always a lot more no's than yeses. And you're focusing in kind of the insure tech side. And we don't tend to do a lot of MGA. So a lot of the no's are around MGA businesses. It's either just generally some of the challenges you talked about earlier of looking at what is the need for this product? Are you fulfilling it? What is your go-to-market channel? Are people really going to buy through that channel or not? And so I think that there's a lot of challenges there. There are cases where on an MGA, if it's in a a line of business where Tokyo Marine is very active, we don't want to invest in something where there's a potential conflict. And so those are generally the most common. On the other companies where we do look very heavily at people that are providing solutions to insurers. So are you going to lower operating costs? Are you going to help with claims? Are you going to be a solution that is data that helps with better underwriting decisions? Is it something that could be used in in risk mitigation across the business? 
There are a variety of different things that we look at there. I, having been a founder, tend to get excited about businesses very quickly and see the potential. And actually, some of my the people on my team I work with often tease me of, you often imagine what the business could be versus what it actually is. And so I, I am very prone to that. And so we do very much look at, okay, let's really understand this business and how it's being run. And so looking at things like the go-to-market, how efficient is the sales team? Are you actually building a sales team where there's a, a repeatable process there? And obviously that's a little bit more mature company. Is this product really differentiated relative to other things that are on the market? And particularly a company that is selling into insurers, the challenge there is that's a long sales cycle. Have you figured it out? Do you understand how to actually sell product, technology, solution into an insurance company and be successful at doing that? And so those are the things that really start looking at. Do we feel that this is a team that can execute against something in a market that is challenging and takes just a lot of perseverance? And I see that you do a lot of due diligence on your own, even though you don't lead deals. But that level of depth of analysis that you do, I can see, and how you form conviction. So it's not dependent on someone else telling you that it's a good deal. You form your own conviction. I can see that. And I can see why sometimes the answer could be no when some of this analysis doesn't give you the answers helps you form that conviction? I'm not always the best at this. If we do say no, I try to, having been the founder, give the feedback as to why. And even through the process, I try and be pretty transparent of, these are the things I'm looking at. This is what I'm thinking about as I'm looking at it. This is why I'm asking for the data that I'm asking for. And giving the feedback of, here's the things that I think you should be thinking about, should be changing. And I also caveat that with, you should never change your business based on something a VC tells you, because I'm looking at it for two weeks. You've been living this for probably a year or more. So you're going to understand the solution a lot more. But these are the things from the outside that I'm seeing. And part of that is working with the founder to understand. And the reason we do the diligence is we want to understand this business because we want to be coming in as a partner and making sure that we're aligned together on this is what we see as the challenges in the business because no business is perfect. And here's the things that we think we need to execute against to be successful. And are we aligned on that? Because I don't want to do an investment and then I see things differently. And then that's just not a positive relationship. There are going to be challenges. Do we think about them the same way? Are we going to attack them the same way? Are we going to be aligned on how to work together to solve the problems that are inevitably going to come up? Steve, you're such a passionate founder. I understand the venture industry is changing. There are a lot of new types of VC firms being formed. But do you ever feel like, I want to get back into the game as a founder? No. (laughs) (laughs) And I've done six or seven startups over the course of my career. And one of the reasons that I wanted to be on this side of the table is I realized I actually really like kind of the problem solving of what's this puzzle and how do you put it together and and really enjoyed kind of the earlier stages of a company of kind of solving those puzzle pieces and getting something actually working versus the I'm going to spend the next 10 years scaling this thing. And so, you know, being on this side of the table allows me to satisfy a lot of that intellectual curiosity of. You know, every company that I see is a new puzzle to try and figure out, okay, well, how is this thing working? And just enjoy doing that. So the diligence process I often think about is, hey, this is a puzzle solving process. Let me understand this business. I'm excited about it. Let me see how it's working. Let me understand the issues associated with it. And being able to not just be doing one thing, hey, I can look at 10 things a week. And I think that intellectual stimulation, both 
I mean, that's the selfish side of why I want to be on it is, is doing that. But you know, I've done this for a long time and can I add back and, and provide value to the next generation of founders that's coming along and trying to build their business and help them accomplish the things that they're trying to accomplish. You do have a lot of wisdom and a lot of experience based on your own personal decisions that you've made for the companies that you've been with. And all that uh, knowledge can be useful to founders in the next generation. We're coming towards the end of our conversation and I want to ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? My wife and I are actually, it's more her. So my wife, Tina, I give her all the credit for this. Very involved in the youth running community in the area. So she in particular runs a program for elementary school and middle schoolers around track and cross country. And so typically 40, 50, 60 kids a season <laughs> that she's helping kind of learn about running. And a lot of it is not focused on how competitive you can be, but kind of learning life lessons around perseverance, community, coming together, healthy lifestyle, that she's done some tremendous work around you know, just helping kids find something that they can do and feel proud about, particularly as they're coming through middle school, which can be difficult, and getting into high school and kind of giving them oftentimes a community they can go to in high school and feel a part of and, and having that be part of their experience. And so she's developed that over the years and it takes a tremendous amount of time and effort. And she's actually created some great results. I mean, she's probably had, what is it, eight to 12 kids at this point that have kind of come through that, gone into high school and then gone on to run in division one programs around the country. And so we're often giving back to, to that community, spending a lot of time on that, um, particularly her, like, like I said, and then uh, our kids have come through that and gone off as well. And so we support the programs that they're now in, in in college quite a bit. So she runs a program called Woodside Wildebeests. They were trying to come up with a W since we were operating out of, out of Woodside. And they discovered that the wildebeest is the fastest W animal in the world. <laughs> so they came up with it. And my son, who was, uh, I think, about eight years old at the time, came up with the logo. And so they have quite the cute branding that they've put together over the years. And he's now running at Cal. And so kind of taken some of those early experiences and turned it into something that uh, has led him to hopefully great places in life. Steve, thank you very much for spending time with me. Thank you for being candid. And uh, you don't do these type of interviews often. So it's a very special moment for the world to hear your voice. Thanks for sharing stories based on your own personal experiences. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you taking the time with me as well. Thank you for listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.